Hey there, this is Jason and Paul, and we encourage you to follow us on Instagram at stateofloveandtrust underscore pod, where we can continue the conversation with you. Thanks for listening. And now, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The State of Love and Trust. It's a Pearl Jam podcast. I'm one of your two hosts, Jason Carapesi, alongside, as always, Paul Guillieri. Paul, we have come to, as I can credit boys to men as saying, the end of <laughs> the road. Um, this is the last episode. The last, well, not of us, but like the last episode of our tribute band series. Are, are you Are you sad? No, this is celebratory, my man. This this is this is something. This is an Irish to behold. way. Behold, <laughs> <laughs> it's an Irish way. You know, it's been an absolute pleasure getting to know these bands, and I have to say, there's there's something that I didn't expect going into this. I did not expect to experience such um, diversity in. Not in just the members, of course, because obviously they're all different people coming from different walks of life. But the, I guess I went into this kind of thinking that the, that the Pearl Jam experience was a bit more universal when in fact it's so different for everybody. And I had never spent this much time like learning from people about how they got into the band and how the band inspired them and moved them in this case to the point where they, they, they pay tribute to the band in the outstanding way that they do. And it was, it was really a study in Pearl Jam fandom in a lot of ways. It's a, you don't really realize it until maybe you go to a show and you kind of chat with people around you. That, that really depends on whether or not you're an extrovert or an introvert. I mean, if you're an extrovert and you don't mind meeting new people, then you might kind of, get a little taste of this here and there, but you know, the tribute band, those guys are arguably the, the biggest fans because they've found a way to take their fandom and express it back in a reflective manner toward everybody else who is also a super fan. Um, so I've learned a lot from these guys as well. You know, this, this band that we're doing today, they're called 10 and they are from the Pittsburgh area. Well, most of the bands from the Pittsburgh area. The singer Nick, um, who's on this uh, interview along with Todd, who's the founder and bassist. Nick is from Long Island, and there, there's a really interesting story on how he got to Pittsburgh. You know, wow, how, how do you go from Long Island to Western Pennsylvania? Well, you'll find out. Mm-hmm. Um, before we get to these guys who have performed over 700 gigs nationally all over the country, that's, that's, that's just mind blowing. Which is a lot of shows. They've been together since uh, 2002 or three, I believe. Yeah. Uh, they've been around the block. Um, and, you know, while we've got you here with bated breath, make sure you go and subscribe to our channel wherever Re- you get your podcasts. Review, subscribe. Do it again if you have to. Yeah. Um, follow us on the socials, as I mentioned at the very tip top of the show, if you haven't already. And, um, and yeah, I think without further ado, let's get into Nick and Todd from 10. All right, 
right, here we are. We're here with uh, Nick and Todd from 10 Band. This is the last part, the last interview. I was just telling you, you're, you're the lead better of this series, you guys. How do you feel about that? Great. Turn up the house lights. Let me see your faces. <laughs> so, Todd, uh, you play what? I am uh, the bass player in the band. You are the Jeff Ament figure. And Nick, what do you do? Lead vocals. Lead vocals. And guitar sometimes. No. No. <laughs> that, that is a, a major complaint, I guess, from our fans. Where is the guitar? Yeah, like you get up there to do better, man. And you're air guitaring. I love it. It's fantastic. <laughs> we really started out as as a tribute really to very early Pearl Jam. So, uh, so one of our fortes is, is that, in fact, the 10 album for our namesake. So we do a lot of a lot of stuff off of that that early era stuff. That's where that's where things started. And we branched out as, as the years have gone on. Um, there were times when we actually had a boom for a while. Our huh. boom actually our boom actually doubled as a uh, uh, Chris Cornell, an amazing he had an amazing high pitched voice and and did a very good job of integrating the Temple of the Dog stuff into the set as well. So that, those were some cool years. That was Shaner. And we would do the most of the Temple of the Dog uh, set in the middle of the 10 show. It would be like the second set back in those days. Did, did, did you do the hits or did you fit like some wooden Jesus in there? Wooden Jesus is my favorite. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> my, my favorite, probably my favorite to play is Wooden Jesus. My favorite song off of that album has to be Say Hello to Heaven now. And when Shane used to shake the walls and it was just, it was a very emotional we did that, I think, Nick, in New York City, right? Your hometown. That's right. That's right. BB Kings. Yeah. Those are some great nights. Great nights. Right in the right in Times Square. So how did you guys each get into Pearl Jam? Oh, man. So I'm going back to when I was 13 years old. So 1994 was the first time I heard of Pearl Jam. Um, actually, my stepsister, who had a boyfriend who's now her husband, um, came over to our house one Saturday morning and he brought over a cassette tape and he said, Nick, I want you to hear this. Just, just be open to it. Listen to it. And let me know what you think. So hit the play button. And the song that came on was animal. Mm. At that point, I, I, I was hooked. I said, this vocalist, amazing vocalist. He, he, he is, you can, the lyrics, like his voice, like you felt the emotion in his voice when he was singing those lyrics. And I haven't been hit with, with that so much emotion in, in a vocalist it's probably since like Steve Perry in Journey. Like when I hear Steve Perry sing, I, I feel the, the emotion in, in every lyric he sings. And Eddie Vedder did the same thing for me. My mom loves Journey. That's her favorite band. And I grew up listening to Journey, a lot of Journey songs. And I said, wow, that's amazing. And then I heard Eddie Vedder singing with such power and aggression. You know, he could be powerful, uh, you know, have that scream, that powerful scream, yet be melodic at times when he needs to be. And just the, the perfect balance of that um, is really looking into the, into the, not the band per se, but just the vocalist. And then I started listening to, other songs that went back to Jeremy and, and Black and Alive, but I had no idea those songs even existed. Really? 
before this. No, I, I did not. I I grew up listening to like oldies and doo-wop from my father, uh, the Bee Gees. Um, I was into like Green Day and The Offspring and Candlebox was huge for me, but I never heard of Pearl Jam until 1994. At that time, they released two albums. So he's like, you need to go back to the first album, listen to like Jeremy and, mm -hmm. and, and Black. So I did. After Animal, he played the rest of the album for me, the Versus album. And then I went back to 10 and, and that was it. I mean, after I heard Jeremy, that was my second, my, my favorite song off of 10. And it was the, I guess it was the emotion at the end, you know, the build up with the drums and the guitar, everything that the, the end was so epic. And I said, wow, like that, that's a, that's a performer right there. That's a great vocalist. And I'm just, I'm going to go and buy all their albums, you know, going forward. And I did, like, I followed the band their entire career. You know, I never fell off the wagon. I, I opened up to different, different soundscapes. You know, every album had a little different soundscape than the next, especially with no code coming out being completely different than anything else I'd done before. It's my favorite album still to this day. No code is my favorite album. Really? Yes. You're yeah. the second person to say that. I love that album so much. I just think it's so diverse. It's so different. And I, the vocal, the vocal performance is so good. It's so soothing yet so powerful. I love the the, the production of the album. I like everything about. I like, I like the instruments, like the, what the guitars they use, the bass they use. I'm a big Jack Irons fan. So I mean, to me, that was that was that was it. That was my album. So anytime we play a, a no code song. I get really excited. You can ask Todd, like, are we playing Red Mosquito tonight? Is it on our set list? <laughs> well, we're going to get there on the questions, baby. Yeah, that's kind of my story of getting into the band. Todd, how about you? Uh, for me, I'm a little bit older than Nick. So, um, actually, Brian, the guitar player, and I, uh, our, our Mike McCready, if you will, uh, in the early 90s, late 80s, we were writing music. We were working very hard towards putting together original music, um, trying to hit the road, get out there, do some things. Um, but I was, that was my thing in the eighties. And I was surrounded by all this hair metal stuff that was going on. And I, I mean, I can name one or two bands maybe that I was interested in. And, uh, Brian and I had similar interest with that, um, when we were writing music and nothing clicked really with any of that stuff for me until, the 90s happened I, I remember it pretty distinctly we were in the hard rock cafe in times square and alive came on the over the loudspeakers and it was like you know i think I've, i i heard this band before this is that and the conversation started i'm like this is something different man this is something's changing here and i know nirvana did all their stuff and you know changed the world and all that sort of stuff but frankly for me it was that album that when 10 hit and Alive came out. I heard it that night. We listened to it the rest you know, that whole drive home from New York City. And I'm like, yeah, I had a blues in me. I had a lot of, I loved The Who. I loved all of that, that sort of rock and roll stuff. Um, and it was like, hey, something's changing. And it was going up the charts and everybody was listening to it. And flannel was in, and I was already wearing combat boots because I had been doing that most through the '80s. And flannel really wasn't all that strange to me either. So <laughs> I had hair. I looked like an, an '80s metal guy with 
flannel and combat boots. So it kind of you were an extra in singles. Yeah, yeah, I, we could have been. Actually, all of us could have been in Todd Citizen Dick. Yeah. <laughs> so we we know how you got into Pearl Jam, both of you, and obviously they're very important to you. So much so that you start a Pearl Jam tribute band. So how did this band start? In in when did you guys each find each other uh, in this band? This is a great story. I'll start, Nick, and then you can you can jump in when at the other part. So, um, as I mentioned, I, I, I sort of fell out of music for a bit in the middle '90s when my uh, when my last band with Brian, who's in this band, uh, and I our our last band sort of like disbanded, and I just got frustrated with the whole thing and stepped away, started having kids and uh, tending to life outside of music until about oh, early 2000s and i you know I, I really got the itch to start doing something again i have to play music I hadn't even picked up a guitar hadn't picked up a bass and kind of ignored things frankly you know uh at that time my my thing with pearl jam started at verses i'm sorry started at 10 and probably ended at verses and a little bit into vitology before i moved on with life and really hadn't even paid attention to many of the albums so when it was time to get back into playing in the 2000s, I had never been even in a cover band. <laughs> I never, you know, like played bars and just did that. I did I, what I did was we wrote music, and so I'm like, okay, well, I don't have time to do all that. <laughs> so all these tribute bands were coming up in Pittsburgh. There were, uh, you know, there was an Ozzy Osbourne one, and there was uh, Alice Cooper one, and a couple others that. And these guys were, you know, they're getting out of the house and making money. I'm like, well crap what could i do i don't know uh no like pearl jam i wonder if pearl jam would work i don't know could, does anybody do a tribute to pearl jam this was at that time it was 2003 so they weren't really that far along the what 10 12 years so i put i pulled up uh i think it was itunes at the time and just went through every single song i figured if i had heard it other people had heard it and maybe you could do a full night of pearl jam in a bar and sure enough, there were about 25 to 30 songs that I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, that yeah, that's right. I forgot about that one. Yeah, okay. All right, this might work. Maybe we can play two sets in a bar and get paid and have some fun. So literally had no idea about a tribute band, anything. I put an ad out in the local paper. Um, whoa, 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 whoa. Ad yeah. out in the local paper. Nice. Yes. Whoa. Analog, Todd. Analog. So I put an ad out. I had one friend. Who, who we had been writing some songs together. That's how I got started again. His name was Craig. Gregor became the, who ended up becoming the uh, the first stone in 10. We had a hard time finding a McCready until I called Brian, who I hadn't talked to in probably eight, nine years since the band broke up. He was always a big fan of Pearl Jam. And he's like, yeah, sure, I'll give it a shot. So once Brian was in, I knew we were good because he's an absolutely brilliant musician. Um, we had Craiger, we had me, and we had a couple of different drummers. And then the first one ended up, the first one that's really stuck ended up being Ray J, Ray Jones, who is probably, aside from Nick, the biggest Pearl Jam fan I've ever met in my entire life, as far as knowing every single tune off of every single album, every deep cut, every B-side, every single tune. Lo and behold, we were successful. We went and did that first bar gig, and holy crap, everyone went nuts. 
we had people stage diving, stage bombing. We had girls on stage taking their shirts off. We had people jumping into the, we're like, Brian and I looked at each other that day and everybody was singing every single word to every single song. And we realized, hmm, this might work. Um, we did a video in a local bar. All of a sudden, calls started coming in from all over the country to go different places, go to Florida, go to Alabama, go to everywhere from Pittsburgh. Purely and from I, that one video? Like, how would they have heard you from you, heard of you? Uh, well, it was the, the internet. The, the, I think MySpace was happening at that time. Facebook wow. was just, just starting out. So uh, promoters from all over the country started calling us, hey, do you want to come to Florida? Hey, do you want to come to Alabama? Do you want to come to the southern tip of Alabama? And then go to Tallahassee. We're like, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, absolutely. 500 bucks. We're there. Let's get in a van and go. And off we went. And what we learned was that uh, the southern tip of Alabama is really, really, really far. So anyway, we made those trips. Maybe that's why the first singer decided it wasn't for him. <laughs> I don't know. Because we started making a whole lot of trips like that um, shortly thereafter. He was pulling a Jack Irons where he just couldn't pull, the, uh, couldn't pull his weight on the, on the tours anymore. He was a big fan of Oasis. So yeah. I think Eddie, Eddie was his second love. And it, it, one thing that's very, very true about this band is that the guy who, who makes it happen every night and brings the magic has to be the Eddie. And so... So Nick? <laughs> yeah, so... Well, going back to 2000... And I think it was 2003, I started my own Pearl Jam tribute band uh, where I grew up on Long Island, New York. And we were playing some pretty cool like bars, Kenny's Castaways on Bleecker Street in Bleecker Street in New York City. We had a couple of pretty like, you know, low key gigs. We were just playing a bunch of Pearl Jam songs and we weren't very good, but we enjoyed playing the music and people came out. They were drinking, having a good time, singing every song. So it was fine. Uh, but, you know, I was looking for something, I guess, more full time. We were just kind of jamming and the guys were. You know, they were writing some original music at the time. Also, I think they wanted to kind of stray away from the Pearl Jam and do some original stuff. And I was all about, no, let's just do Pearl Jam. So I started uh, looking around the area and I stumbled across the 10 band on their website and their intro video. When you get to the website, you see Brian's hands, I believe, playing the chords to Corduroy. And the notes that came out of that guitar... I could not tell if that was the album version of Corduroy <laughs> or if that was live. Like I could not tell the, the tone of that guitar, like the hair on my arms were standing up. It was that awesome. So then the rest of the band kicked in, the drummer kicked in, bass kicked in, everything kicked in. I said, wow, I, I'm jealous right now. You know, this band is great. They're, they're phenomenal. They're spot on. I wish I could be in that band. I told myself that. So I kind of let it, you know, I just did my own thing for a while. You know, I didn't find any bands that I wanted to join. So I just kept on doing my thing with the band on Long Island. And then one day, it was like a few months later, I decided to go back on the website to see where the 10 band was going. Maybe they were coming to New York to do a show. And there was this ad it was it was in red font, I believe, in the bottom right hand corner of the website. It said looking for a lead singer. So I think I, I contacted Todd or somebody. Oh no, Jim. Jim was the booking agent, I think, at the time, right? Right, Todd? I think Jim was yep. booking stuff, helping out. 
Yep. A good friend of, of Ray J in the band and, and rest of the guys. So I contacted the 10 band and I said, Hey, you know, I sing in a Pearl Jam band here in New York. You know, I'm looking to leave the band, looking for a more full-time position, you know, playing more gigs, some quality gigs, you know, um, I'll be, you know, I want to come down and try out. So I'm not sure. I think I flew from New York LaGuardia airport to Pittsburgh international. Oh, you use LaGuardia. This must be true love. <laughs> I used LaGuardia. I did. <laughs> <laughs> I flew into Pittsburgh. Okay. So Jim, the, the booking agent picked me up at the airport. Wow. Don't anybody. Okay. I just trusted myself with this guy I never met before. And he drove me to Ray's house where they used to have our rehearsals. So in this, in this duplex, this little small little house, they had a little basement there, had a good setup down there. And so I walked in and we did, I guess like, they had some audition songs. I think it was like Even Flow, Alive, Better Man, Daughter, stuff like that. And then after we were done playing those songs, I said, hey, guys, do you know Light Years? You know, like, do you know Sad? You said this? I said, I asked them, do you guys know like deep yeah. cut stuff? Yeah, because yeah. This stuff, this stuff is boring to me. I want, I want to do some other stuff. And I think they were shocked. I don't know. I don't know what their, their reaction was, but to, to, they're like, you know those songs? I'm like, I know the whole catalog. Just pick a song. Let's do it. And the 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 hour, the hour that I think the audition would have taken was now the entire weekend. I think I I I delayed my ticket. I had a ticket to leave that night, I believe, to go home. And I changed my ticket and stayed the entire weekend. And this I is like the actual Eddie Vedder story. Flying up with the audition, bang, yeah. cutting a few songs. <laughs> We played the entire weekend. I swear. I think we played two nights in a row, two days in a row and just rehearsed. And then, and then what happened was I just started flying back and forth from New York to Pennsylvania when we had gigs. Hmm. And then at that point it became a little bit too, it was out of control. I couldn't fly every weekend to do these gigs. It was getting expensive for the band. It was taking a toll on my life. And I said, you know what? The hell with it. I'm going to move to Pittsburgh. I packed up my, my little Civic. I drove across the state and bam, I'm now here since 2006, so 14 years in Pittsburgh, and and that's the story. And now, you're married now, so you you met your married, family there. Married, two kids. Yeah, there you can see in the wall here. There's decoration, beautiful artwork. So 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 let me ask you something here. Uh, for a guy who knows the catalog, I'm curious. What's your favorite Pearl Jam song to play live? Oh, Todd Todd's gonna be mad when he hears this because he already knows. Uh oh, still don't play it. Uh-oh. <laughs> hard, to, hard to imagine. Okay, nice. Things are different then, Todd. Come on. I love I love the tune. We just got to pull it all together. But I got a couple of favorite tunes. Hold on. It sounds, like, it sounds like Todd's years, uh, calling out somebody else in the band for not being able to hack it. Over the years, that's been handled some, some way, shape, or form, right? I think I may have been out of the band for a small hiatus there for a while. I've gone through many life changes as this band has happened over all these years. I've been divorced, potentially because of it, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, I left for a while. I came back. Um, the, every time that you think that it's going to stop, it's going to end. Um, something brings it back together again. And I'd love to say it's you know our desire and will and all those wonderful things, but quite honestly, it's the people that we do this for. Uh, I had no idea uh, uh, what it was like, what, what the Gen community was was about. Quite honestly, until we we went out and started doing this, 
Well, yeah. I, I'd love to know then, Todd. So what, what is it about Pearl Jam fans that really set them apart? Because you guys are the longest running tribute band in America right now. You've got what, like 700 shows in the bank at this point. You guys have played all over the country. So when, when you think about the fans that are coming to see you, the very same fans that also go to see Pearl Jam, I'm curious, like your longevity, the volume of the performances, it really says something about, about you and the Pearl Jam fan as well, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. I, uh, I don't know. I get a little choked up when I talk about this stuff, but the, the, when we went out and started doing this, it was, it was, you know, it was, I'll be honest. When I started doing this in 2003, it was a, it was almost like a gag where we were just go see what would happen in Pittsburgh. I've never been in any of these kind of bands before. And what, I, would anybody even listen to it? Would everybody even show up? And, uh, when we did it and you saw the sheer joy and reaction of the people when we started performing this music, it became this thing that we do with these people. If you come to a show in Pittsburgh now, 17 years later, there are as many people as we can jam into a venue <laughs> come out that have been with us all those years. And they just love the band, not just they don't love tan they love pearl jam but the fact of the matter is these people live for this stuff live for those lyrics the people that you see singing along in the front row that every single note of those lyrics that mean something to them that have changed their life or impacted them in some sort of way and the poetry and all of the things that have been created by this by pearl jam and our ability to go out and share that every night we're not, I mean, we're not Pearl Jam. We're not uh, anything really. But what we do is we get to throw this party in tribute to this band and not just the music, but to the people that love it. And we get to do it over and over again every year with uh, a bunch of friends that we've met all across the country. It's when you think you want to step away from it and you go and do one of those nights when you've played even flow for the 800th time <laughs> and you think i don't think i can play at 801 and you hit the first note and the whole place starts bouncing up and down and we're all having fun together it's like okay i can probably do this some more when you go to a show and i've noticed this myself but like when i when i was in paul when we went to, to the la forum shows if you just and you mentioned even flow which is why this came to my mind you hear those first four hi-hat hits and just the way he's hitting those hi-hats, you know, it's even flow. And the crazy Pearl Jam nerd inside you goes, even flow. And you get, you get all psyched. Do you hear like the beginning, like strums one, two, three, four. Two. Oh, it's elderly. Yeah. Like those little things I'm getting goosebumps. I don't know if you can see it. Like Nick, is that how you feel about this? Like how does, how does, how do these songs grab you? How does the community grab you? Like Todd was mentioning, you know, when you're when you're singing these songs, it doesn't matter what what song it is. There's someone in the crowd that is locked in to that mm. particular song, and especially during Black and and Given a Fly, oh. I think I think those two songs are probably the most emotionally charged tunes that we play. And you can see, like people are crying, like you can see the tears in their eyes. You can see. Their faces are getting red, like they're they're like they're 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 now into it like spiritually, 
Like it's no longer just singing the songs. Everybody is now the whole community, the whole, everyone in the venue, all of us on stage. It's like we're in this we're own little planet and we're all together and we're all embracing these tunes. And for me, I, I, I want to make sure that I am displaying the emotion in the way I sing to match what people are feeling in the crowd. You know, so I try to bring it my all every time. I try to make sure that the lyrics are felt. And that's one of the things why I love Pearl Jam, why Eddie, I love Eddie Vedder so much, is that you can feel every lyric. So when I go out and I perform those songs, I sing them, I sing them from the heart. And, and when people when people hear that, they start to think about, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm back in 1992, 93, 94. That's what people say when they see us. They feel like they're they're back in the early 90s just because of, um, the emotion, the the drums. I know that Adam, he's a big Abraziz fan, so he kind of mimics Abraziz a lot in the songs, and and just uh, the tempos, they're so like ah, they just they just ring in your ears, and just all of that, all the music, it just I don't know, it's just a it's a wonderful experience, and you feel like you you come out of your I don't know, like you feel like you're somebody else. <laughs> you know, you, you just, you're not in your own body for those two hours you're playing that show, whatever it might be. You feel like you're just part of something else. You know, you're just zoned in. Um, so every song that we, we perform, it, it doesn't matter what it is. There's, there, there's that connection to, to the fan base. Um, but given a fly, it, it's sometimes hard to sing the song at, at points because it, People like are singing the chorus with you and you just want to just back off the mic and just let them sing it. Yeah. You know? But also people want to hear you sing the high parts in the, in the chorus. You know, it's, it's a pivotal point of that song. So I try the best I can no matter when we play a song, given a fly, usually in the beginning of the set somewhere, but you um, try to give it your all every time, no matter where it's placed, you know? So, you know, sadly that synergy that really qualifies as a hallmark for what you guys do is not as accessible right now. You know, um, you mentioned Nick with the, 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 the stage behind you, right. The, the, the rehearsal studio there, you say it's probably got spider webs on it right now, you know? So I'm curious, what are you guys trying to do amidst this pandemic? Like how has COVID impacted you guys, but more importantly, what are you trying to do to push through this as a band? So when COVID hit and that sort of middle of March came to us all, we had, uh, we had some decisions to make about what we were going to do. And we had a full, really probably one of the biggest full summers that we had. We do a lot of festivals, outdoor things in the summertime throughout really the upper Northeast, uh, Pittsburgh, certainly all through Pennsylvania, Ohio, Carolinas, and so forth. And we had a really busy schedule this year as we were looking forward to. Um, but just given the nature of what was happening and the, the thought of trying to bring, of bringing people together, that's what we do. We bring people together and uh, none of us makes a living doing this. None of us uh, needs a paycheck necessarily to do this thing that we do it's about bringing people together. And it just seemed at that time that bringing people together in a large crowd was not the right thing to do for the remainder of this year, at least. 
at least for the foreseeable future. So, um, you know, we had we made a very conscious decision as a band and talked about it at length and decided that let's just sort let's back off on our plans for 2020 until we see what's going to happen. And we're still kind of sitting in that limbo trying to wait and see uh, when we can get back out there and start uh, getting with people again. Um, so anyway, in the meantime, I've been uh, doing a lot of things and trying to come up with ways that we can put both musicians back to work, certainly ourselves, but um, other musicians, and most importantly, the, the techs and the venues and all of the people that are that surround not just the industry that we have with 10, but really the, the music industry in general. So um, we've, we've, I've done a little bit of a pivot with our, our sort of our parent company. <laughs> I call it a company. I mean, it's me that has, uh, it's called 10 Band Productions, and it's what we've always done for marketing and booking and so forth for 10 throughout all the years. We've done a little bit of a pivot, invested into some <clears throat> video technology and some live stream technology. And what we're trying to do is come up with a concept around virtual venues, which um, enables not just the music industry, but also um, other industries that are impacted by this, so churches, uh, sporting events, and those sorts of things. Uh, we're trying to put some technology around what we're doing there to enable people to get back to work and hopefully start to share their art and their magic with uh, with other people. So we've been working on that. We've got in the can as 10, a couple of shows that we have uh, video for that we've been redoing. And so we th we're thinking about releasing some of that in the second half of this year. But more importantly, at the end of this year um, in Pittsburgh somewhere, so that we don't have to travel and we can, uh, we can distance as well as we can. Um, we're talking about doing a, a, a very uh, low capacity show in person but mm. actually live streaming that show to really whoever wants to see it oh, nice. yeah, very cool so we have no idea what really is going to happen with that could be 10 people on a stream could be ten thousand. <laughs> so would you try and do it outside or how would that how would that work in in pennsylvania right now they have uh like a quarter it, it varies between a quarter and a, and a half capacity um restriction for some of the the venues so if we can pull that off in front of 150 people and then potentially play it to the live stream to whoever the heck in the world wants to watch it, um, I think that's what we're endeavoring to do. We've got a couple of relationships with our local venues here in Pittsburgh, um, a couple of them that are interested in, in attempting this endeavor with us. So I think we're going to try and give it a shot, if not towards the end of the year, around Christmas time, certainly in January. And, uh, See what happens. We hope, we hope folks tune, tune in and enjoy themselves and we can kind of share that party. We've got a lot of interactive stuff we can do with Zoom meetings and try to bring people into the room through that. And we're going to try and get as creative with it as we can and try to just recreate that fun that we have when we're, when we're out on the road with, with people and that, throw that Pearl Jam party and see, if, see who joins. So, And that's really what it comes down to, man. I mean, I was talking to Nick beforehand about you know, one of the other bands that we've interviewed, um, Vitalogy, out here in Los Angeles, they're playing a bar in Long Beach where they're playing inside, but everyone is going to be outside at like dining tables sp spaced out accordingly with surround sound and a giant monitor to watch the band on. You know, you got bands like Black Circle in Brazil doing live streams. They have like a whole little studio they can do live streams at and they have a donation QR code and, you know, a super chat on YouTube. And so... 
every band is trying to figure this thing out. And I love that you are trying to come up with a way to kind of like do everything. Like we're going to play in a venue. So everybody gets, you know, gets their beak wet that they would normally get their beak wet. And then people can watch it here who are able to come and hang out. And then you got people, you know, if, if you got that, that big mobile Alabama contingent that you guys have been, you know, digging out for the last 17 years, they can, they can watch too. You know, I, I think, I said this to every band we've talked to, but it's it, it's absolutely true every single time I say it. Tribute bands are so important. And I say that because, you know, even if Pearl Jam comes to your neck of the woods, um, we were talking to, like I said, Vitalogy last week, one of those guys is from Lebanon. They've never been to Lebanon. If, you, if you're from Peru, they've only been there once. If you're from LA, they haven't been here in six years. So seven years now. So what a tribute band does is it, it scratches that itch. And it does something, this synergistic, um, this experience that Nick was talking about. You kind of yeah. are the are the methadone to the heroin. And I'm so happy and so uh, thankful that you guys exist doing this thing. And obviously, these over 700 shows worth of people agree. So I think, Paul, and I just want to say thanks for, for doing your thing for all this no time. Question. And uh, for coming back into the band so many times and continuing yeah. to rock out for us. Uh, and it, uh, it's absolutely been a labor of love over all these years. Uh, I, you know, you mentioned the Vitalogy guys. We've met them along the way, kind of brothers in arms, if you will. Um, still talking about it. I think, Nick, did you not even go? Didn't you fly out and do a gig with them one time? Yeah, we played. A, we, we played. A, Aaron texted me. He goes, I need you, Nick. I, I can't I can't do this. Gig. Can, you, can you fly? And I'm like. Uh, okay, so I just, you know, they got me a plane ticket. We didn't rehearse. I just, I wrote the set list. They gave me a song list. I said, I want to play these songs. And I think we opened the show. You got light years and sad? <laughs> no, I got, I got, no, I got, I got Wash. Okay. And I, and I got nice. Breaker Fall. I got Breaker Fall. Hey, uh, and my, and my other one was Force of Nature. Nice. So I got one cool. in there too. So Tremor Christ, I got to pick all the songs. And the guys are like, Wait a second. We're playing a carnival. We can't. We got to play some hits too, you know. I'm like, do we have to? Really? <laughs> We're like, playing bugs. Damn it! <laughs> I was like, forget Jeremy. Let's do something else. Help! Help! <laughs> yeah, right. It's like, how about you are? Let's do yeah. you are. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we need to hear that more. Well, guys, um, thank you so much for coming on and, and talking to us. Um, Hopefully we can see you guys either through the screen or in person, the, uh, the Pittsburgh crowd. And then in 2021, hopefully we can get you out here on the road again, because it's, it's been too long. It's been too long. Well, thanks guys for the time. Yeah. Thanks guys. Thanks Jason. It's it's a pleasure. Be healthy and be well. You too guys. You as well. That's really, that's really for everyone. Paul, those guys can spin a yarn. Oh yeah, they can. In the best of ways. Uh, I have to say, man, it was it was a real pleasure getting a handle on. Okay, let me rephrase this. What I loved is how the, the you had two guys with with age discrepancy here, right? I mean, you have one guy who's who's pretty pretty young, you know. You had another guy who is self proclaimed pretty old. Probably 10 and, years apart, if you had to say. Yeah, pro- 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 oh, probably yeah. about 10 years apart. And what I found fascinating was how we had a passionate, two passionate fans, but one of them 
is just obsessed over the whole catalog. He's like, I, you know, let's let, let's play a B side. You know, let's, let, let's. You got another guy who's just rooted in that Temple of the Dog era, mm-hmm. rooted in in that whole scene, and, and rightfully so, right? I mean, that that's kind of what hooked a lot of us. But it's fascinating. The more I talk to the folks that are that are in this industry, that that are that are passionate about the band how big no coat is amongst musicians. And uh, it's really, yeah, really, really. Cool. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 I've always loved the album. And, you know, we had a conversation a while back where we, we, we were discussing how the album seems to continue to grow on us as we grow older. And uh, I thought that was a pretty cool insight from him where he, he not that it was his insight, but he was saying that the, the, the wide spectrum of, of just eclectic sounds and in vocal range that you saw from Eddie on the band. And but the even band being, partner. being as old as he or as young as he was at the time to, to realize that maybe there's a certain sense of maturity, I guess, at that age to, to feel that way. And John uh, from, uh, from Corduroy said the same thing. Yeah. So apparently that's possible <laughs> at that age. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if in five to 10 years, we're going to look back on Riot Act in maybe the same way, like, you know, at the time and, you know, to a degree, even now, it's not in the top half of my favorite records from the band, but maybe that'll change in time. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's a hard Look, nut to crack. I'm just saying that maybe, maybe our, our grade of the album will change over time. And it's well, simple. mine has, I mean, you, you know me, I've been trying to sell you on right act as, at least as a far more listenable album than hey, I don't skip that. any songs. Okay. That's fair. But I will say that, uh, you know, you, you, you look at the dedication that these two guys put into that band. It's hard to see how it's almost not becoming something that's a, a, the sacrifice that, that goes into yeah. it. You know, we, we, when you're talking about something that just refuses to die and you start realizing as you grow older, you start thinking, man, like this has been the earmark of the last 15 years of my life and it, it will continue to be. And, and you start thinking how it, it, it really becomes a major part of who you are as a person and, and, and in a good way, because it, it reaffirms it's a form of community. Um, you get to give as well as receive. I mean, there, there's so much positive energy that I've seen come out of these, these bands and, and these interviews have further confirmed that. But with these two gents, the longevity is what's most impressive. Yeah. It really, really is. And I can't help but think, I mean, h- how does that not become such a major part of the fabric of who you are when you do something that long? I mean, I know people that haven't worked at a job as long as these two guys have been in this band. Yeah. Or worked or, or been in a relationship. Exactly. Longest, you know, uh, Todd said it early on in the interview, it's a labor of love. It is. Um, and like I said, 700 gigs over that somehow. Uh, they did mention... Um, just to reiterate that they are going to play a show in Pittsburgh at a venue, um, try and keep, and there was this, this big thing a couple weekends ago uh, called save our stages. And a lot of big bands played uh, venues around where they live. And I know um, Miley Cyrus played with the whiskey and the food fighters played Troubadour and just little sets to try and, and do, do the live stream with a fundraiser kind of thing. Kind of like that. But in Pittsburgh, for the local venues, if they can get in a handful of people, great. And then they're going to try and live stream it. So if anybody wants to watch that, boom, there you go. You sign up, you get in there, 
maybe donate to try and help the venues and, and off we go. So no dates confirmed for that yet, but as soon as um, they know, they'll tell us and we'll make sure you guys all know. So wherever you are in this country, and they mentioned Mobile, Alabama. So Mobile, if you're listening, <laughs> a big contingent down there in, on, on the Gulf, you, you go watch that live stream. Um, and one other thing, Nick said he really loved the Bee Gees growing up. So maybe we should have chosen one of the Bee Gees songs for the Lyric of the Week, but we haven't. We've chosen the song that he wishes they would play. And that's coming up next in our Lyric of the Week. Like I said, Paul, Lyric of the Week. We're going back to the Versus days. But it didn't show up on record until Lost Dogs. And that is hard to imagine. Jason so it it's really hard to imagine that this song never made an album it really is it I'm not uh, giving you the the, the satisfaction of laughing <laughs> at that stupid joke hey <laughs> here's what I will say um you know Ed mentions in Lost Dogs that it's a frequently held up fan sign mm-hmm. and uh it, it's a great great song um I've always felt that it, it should have been the closer for Vitology Mm, um, good shout. Because, because they recorded it during the Vitology sessions too. There's two versions of this song. There's the one that, that you hear on um, Lost Dogs, but then there's another one from the Vitology recording sessions. Is that the one that, yeah. that ended up on the Chicago Cab? Exactly, soundtrack? yes. Yeah. And so I really feel that that would have been a, a marvelous ending to that album. But uh, there's a lot going on with these lyrics, man. And I'm really curious, since you're the one that sent these lyrics to me, you know, what was the impetus? Like what? What were you marinating when you when you brewed this up? Well, first of all, first of all, I want to say that we have yet to do the Vitalogy retracking. Uh, I believe Hard to Imagine will be available, so put that in your back pocket, America, because we'll get there, and perhaps it'll show up. So this song and, and Melbourne. And- <laughs> <laughs> The people in Australia are like, why do they keep saying our name so much? Because uh, Paul likes saying it correctly. That's why. I do. I do. Uh, anywho, Lyric of the Week this week is the refrain from Hard to Imagine. And these lyrics, they always felt like someone trying to atone for a mistake in their past to me. A significant mistake that maybe almost caused irreparable harm. Or maybe, maybe it was irreparable because we don't actually have a, a coda to the story. It seems very open-ended to me. Um, so now the subject has matured. They've grown. They've seen their error. They feel ashamed or asking for forgiveness. That's kind of the general theme, I think, here. And I think this may have been written with a personal relationship in mind. Um, I don't know that it's Eddie's, but it's somebody he knew. And obviously, that's that's someone that's something that everyone can relate to, I think, and or at least many people can relate to. Maybe in the moment, you know, quote, back then, you weren't aware of yourself. You weren't mature enough yet to realize the harm that you were doing, uh, either to yourself or somebody else. It could also be a story about violence, not just emotional abuse, but physical abuse. And everyone around saw what you were doing to that person or yourself, like I said. 
Maybe you served time. Maybe it's just been a long time, but here you are and you're changed. You want forgiveness. You've tried to explain yourself and apologize, but words can only go so far. It's a very helpless feeling, but perhaps you have earned that helplessness. You have to continue to do your best to atone for your mistakes, to see your wrongs, and to ask for forgiveness, but you have to mean it and you have to work for it. It is earned. So at the end of the day, you're left just hoping that it works out. It'll either end up a personal yet self-inflicted tragedy or it'll be redemption, but you don't know. And that's kind of the beauty of this song and with, with the way that these lyrics and this refrain, it repeats only the one time with that little ooh-ah in the middle of it. And then the song just kind of flows out to the end. There's no end. And it's kind of like, okay. And you don't know. You got to fill in your own gaps. It's kind of like choose your own adventure kind of thing. What happens to the character here? Do they find redemption or is it just living in the bed that they made kind of thing? So it's a, it's a cautionary tale, I think, if, if I may. What do you think? I don't disagree with you on the idea that it's a cautionary tale in a lot of ways. You know, this opening line to the to the song, paint a picture using only gray. Life's not black and white, right? So we live in the gray and in the gray, there's, there's a lot that we're proud of and there's a lot that we're ashamed of. And, you know, these lines here, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine. Tear into yourself, count tails on your arm. For the longest time, I couldn't, help but think to myself that this was a reference to to heroin use i mean you you look back to this era in the band's history uh, a lot of the musicians that they knew a lot of the people that they called friends were either using heroin you know you get folks like uh andrew wood and and uh, uh lane staley um other members of other bands that they were friends with and, and you saw there's a lot of music in Pearl Jam's catalog that kind of references drug use and, and serves to operate as a cautionary tale. And so to a degree, the song, and I thought you hit the nail on the head here when, when you mentioned this self-destruction, you know, tear into yourself, count tails on your arm, ah, the beating ticking like a bomb after seeing, I'm sorry, after having seen all that they saw. So it's the, it's really hard to, to nail down exactly what it's in reference to because we're not supposed to. I think that the song is intended to be about pain. It's intended to be about self-affliction and self-infliction. And it doesn't matter whether it's drug use or PTSD or, you know, sabotaging your, your relationship with somebody. Mm or sabotaging your relationship with yourself, you know, where, where you lose your identity in something. What matters is that we are prone to destruction. You know, we're just wired that way. It's why little boys smash shit all the time. Dude, my, my son, all he wants to do is watch cars crashing. On YouTube, <laughs> or he takes his matchbox cars and rams them into his monster trucks. I'm like, they're, they're, Why is that interesting to you? I don't know what it is, but uh, there's something about tearing things down. That is part of the fabric of who we are as people. It's, it's embedded in our human nature and we fight against that. There's something primal about it that we fight against to build 
and build and build instead of tear down, tear down, tear down. And, and that goes to a metaphysical level too, when we start discussing who we are as people and, and how easy it is to tear others down or even ourselves when pushed to the brink. And this song is a cautionary tale. And, and you know, you don't want to be sitting there in a situation saying, I, I hope this works somehow, which is, which is more or less how the song ends. And looking back at how things were different then, uh, but all is different now. So there is some, some positivity in this respect, but we don't want to be hoping that things work out. And so it's really important that we, we not lose ourselves in that dilemma. You know, there's a great Langston Hughes poem called Mother to Son. Since you brought up your son, it, it, it kind of triggered, triggered this thought process for me. I was uh, reading the poem the other day. Actually, I was teaching the poem the other day. And uh, the poem, I'm not going to recite the whole poem now, but I will say this. There are two renditions of it that I highly encourage everyone to listen to. Number one is a rendition that Martin Luther King delivers in his Hmm. speech. And number two, Viola Davis, extraordinary African-American actress, she nails this poem. I mean, it stirs to the point where you'll feel moved. And uh, it's very much, you know, I'll just one line in there that says, life for me ain't been no crystal stair, but eyes are still climbing. And I can't help but think about that where it's like, life's been hard, you know, it's had tacks and nails and splinters and boards torn up, but I keep climbing anyway. So don't rest, don't sit down because you think it's too hard. You have to push forward. And I think that you see some of that in this track, you know, things were different then. all is different now. I hope this works somehow. I tried to explain, you know, you weren't in a position to explain. And uh, it, it, it's almost hard to imagine, you know what I mean? for somebody on the outside. And it's hard to imagine when you're in the middle of it too, but you have to keep pushing forward, you know, uh, pushing through the dark, even when there isn't any light. And so it, it's an inspirational song. I thought, I think the music does a, a beautiful job of complimenting the lyrics as well, especially that, that little, what is it like a tremolo guitar at the beginning? You know, he kind of gets that little, little vibrato mm. at the beginning. Um, anyway, man, great track, great lyric, really happy you picked it. Uh, and just to kind of put a little button on this theme here um, of pushing through, you know, and I, I was kind of thinking, you know, we don't want to always try and tie in something modern to every song because it may not, it may not work out. Um, this one I didn't really think needed, needed a modern interpretation, but one little, one little thread made me think about um, people who may have voted a certain way four years ago. Uh-huh. And, and feel a certain um, bit of shame maybe, or, you know, something along those lines. And how can I correct things? How can I make it better? How can I explain what I did? Does that make sense? It, it does. Um, and there are people like that, that I think, uh, you know, you, you think about what pushed you in a certain direction. And then four years later, uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you realize you got conned. I I mean, and it could be also how, how you chose to uh, vote a few years back. And then what happened from that, the, the collateral damage was you lost friends, you lost family members that you now you're not speaking to these people anymore because you made a choice. And so that choice has now haunted you all this time. And maybe you've seen the light, like the character in this story. Maybe you've, maybe you've seen what you've done and you go, oh shit, I, I didn't, I, I didn't mean for that to happen. I, and you're trying to explain yourself away and trying to correct your mistake, but you know, you can only do so much because you're only one vote out of millions. And so yeah. your vote may not actually 
get, you know, it might not be the one to, to push it over the edge, but all you can do is hope that it will. So I, I don't know that that, that fully applies here, but it, it, I did think about that. And I want to make sure I mention it because this is the last show that we're, you're going to listen to before election day here in the United States. So yeah, it's something to, to think about. Um, Good point. Let's move on to our live cut of the week. Ball live cut of the week. Hard to imagine. Where are we going? When are we going? Well, we're, we're going to Boston first. Boston, yeah, Boston. We're going to Boston on April twelfth, nineteen ninety four. Uh, for anybody who's unaware, that is the Orpheum Theater show. It was an epic, legendary set. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was so epic, in fact, that it was featured on the Legacy Edition album reissues 20 years later when, when they, they combined verses and Vitology. And this particular set actually happens in between the release of verses and Vitology. Um, I think Vitology showed up in what, like December of 94, I believe. Um, I December 4th, I want to say. And the vinyl yeah. came out a couple weeks earlier than that. Right, right. So, you know, 2011, we get the re-release. We find out live at the Orpheum is, in, Orpheum is included. And it's a 25-set, just awesome performance. Amazing set list. Created by the crew, actually, mm-hmm. at the time. So there, there was a period where it was like a, this mythic gem of a show that everybody had to have. For those of you who remember the bootleg days, you know, before they started dropping them during the uh, binaural tour. Uh, we, we used to have to work a little harder, Jason, to get those things. Uh, but this particular set was uh, just e- extraordinary. Um, th- you know, this this is shortly after uh, Cobain killed himself, actually. I want to say it was, oh my God, it was like a, couple a week. It's about week, a week maybe? after. Yeah. yeah, about a week after Kurt Cobain killed himself. So you listen to a song like Hard to Imagine, and we just had a wonderful conversation about self-inflicted wounds, whether they be emotional or physical. And to have this song played that night, I, I thought was no accident. I think that in a lot of ways, there, there's a, a dialogue happening. And, and I truly believe that because the rendition of Immortality from this show has a different set of lyrics, actually, than the one that shows up on the album. Um, now, were they changed specifically for one reason or another? I mean, I, I cannot attest, but uh, it's possible the song was still germinating. You know what I mean? But... I will say, though, that it was a special night, and I think some of the themes that, that we were talking about were, were heavy in the band's mind, and it really comes out in the performance. So uh, it's, it's the best version of this track you'll find from that era, in my opinion. So I hope everybody enjoys it. Okay. April 12th, 1994, Boston, Massachusetts. Watch the 
tell a story, but no one would listen that long. It's hard to imagine. It's hard to
There it is, Paul. Hard to imagine from a terrific set picked by the crew, the third show in three nights in Boston. You got the Gadden, you got the Gadden, you got the Orpheum. A <laughs> couple of days off, they play SNL, very famously. Um, uh, at the end credits of that, Eddie, uh, you know, patted his chest for uh, for Kirk. Um, and then they played their last show of the tour, I think the next night uh, at the Paramount underneath Madison Square Garden. Though that was the last show of Dave Epperzee's. So yeah. this, this Orpheum show was the second to last Dave Epperzee's show. And um, man, it's a good one. And I think in, in the liner notes um, from one of our favorite websites, Two Feet Thick, uh, Ed says that he is um, oddly happy and that people shouldn't be expecting him to be this happy all the time because it would sully his reputation. But uh, it, it was such a great song, such a great show. Th- this is a weird song in that it's hardly ever been played. And, you know, we have a few places that we go to for, for stats. We love our PJ Stat Tracker app. Yes, we do. Um, another great website that, for information on this stuff is livefootsteps.org. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some discrepancies between those two and the official website as well, as far as how many times it's been played. Live Footsteps says 37 times, teased 11. PJ Stat Tracker says 35 times tagged eight. I don't know if a tag and a tease is the same thing, but it wasn't played very often, um, even in the early days. And there was a huge break from 94 to 98, played three times in 98, then a big gap until 2005, where it was played seven times. That's the most it's been played in any calendar year um, since then, like three to five to one to two times since then, pretty much every year there's yeah. a tour. But um, the point is not played a lot. Uh, have you seen it? I, I don't think I've seen it live. I'd have to go back to the shows I've been to with the PJ Stat Tracker app and and find out whether or not the shows I was at featured that song. Uh, I looked it up earlier. Um, if it's correct, uh, I have been to one show. Really? Be, yes, October first, uh, I think first or third uh, in Philadelphia. Third, October third, two thousand five in Philadelphia. I remember exactly where I was sitting too. I think they opened with a show with Wash, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. But um, anyways, great song. And Nick, that was for you. That was for you. And Todd, come on, get on board, baby. We want to hear that at the, at the Pittsburgh live stream show in, in a month or so. There you go. So, um, Paul, let's put a coda on this tribute band series. Final thoughts? Final thoughts. Um, just want to say thank you to all the bands for their time for sharing their stories, for being as candid as they were, and uh, for just sharing in the joy that is the band's music. Um, you know, we, we get to talk about the band's music. They have the talent and the, the privilege of playing it and, and, and communicating with other Pearl Jam fans in a live fashion and just letting that synergy generate. And I appreciate them for that. Uh, you said it pretty much during every band interview, uh, we need this, you know, like these bands need to exist. It's important that they do. There is a place for bands like this. And uh, if you're a Pearl Jam fan, I hope that you, you, you take the time to support some of these acts, check them out, visit their sites. If they ever come your way, definitely get a ticket and go see them live. It's the closest thing that you'll get. You know what? I was going to say it's the closest thing you'll get to seeing the band live. But here's the thing. When you write a song, 
and somebody else plays it, for a moment, it's their song too, you know? And I think that don't go see these guys because you want to replicate Pearl Jam. Go see these guys because you love these songs and you want to share them and you want to hear them play live and let these guys play their songs. Or I'm sorry, let these guys play Pearl Jam songs their way. And obviously they do, a, some of these bands do a marvelous job of remaining as faithful as possible to uh, album renditions or particular sets and shows from the band's history that, that really, you know, are, are knockout performances and what have you. But at the same time, like these are musicians too. And, and you're going to see little flares from these, these folks that, that are unique and individual and, and it, and see the freshness and the uniqueness in that experience, because you're not going to, to, to hear something that's recycled. You're going to hear something that's organic and, and it's special. And so it was a privilege and an honor to have these interviews and, and I'm grateful for the experience and I look forward to continuing our relationship with these bands, Jason. I really do. I'm excited about uh, kind of where this whole thing goes and, 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 you know, being a part of this greater community. Couldn't have said it better myself. Um, 10 Vitalogy, Red Mosquito, Corduroy, The Mighty Black Circle. There are more bands out there that maybe we'll speak to in time. I was alerted of a corduroy in Chile ah. that is very good that I didn't know about until after we already recorded a few interviews. So maybe we'll talk to them in time. There's a band out of Italy that's very good, apparently. I think they're called Last Exit, perhaps. So there's bands all over the place. So maybe we'll get to them in time. But yes, thank you uh, for being tribute bands. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you for those fans finding us and for our fans finding them, if you didn't already know. And let's keep the, um, the Pearl Jam community uh, circling and um, until next week when we have a fresh episode of just you and I talking for 45 minutes God help us <laughs> you've been listening to a state of love and trust love and trust